Hey, hey, and welcome to the Know It All podcast. We're here today to do our NBA 7 on 7, plus Rita Cinema is going to join us for a movie review, One Night in Miami, and the movie Midnight Sky, so a double feature. And joining us to kick it off, the NBA, Achilles Reign. Achilles, you ready to dive deep in our seven topics in seven days on the NBA? I'm ready for the seven on seven, baby. All right, let's go seven on seven. All right, first off, um, a little extra bonus coverage. Um, the Nets, they're struggling. Uh, another loss last night. Um, I don't think you worry when they lose to like the Sixers or the Bucks or the elite teams, you'd call them in the NBA East, but uh, they have a Wizards and they have a Pistons loss now mixed in there. Now there was no Kevin Durant here, but um, this is getting a little interesting, isn't it? Yeah, sorry. Uh, definitely. I mean, for this type of team to lose games like that, I, they've lost what five out of the last six. I believe uh, so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's getting to that territory where it makes you question a little bit of uh, what's going on with the team chemistry. To, uh, team chemistry. Now, I understand that you know they've got a few people that are in and out of the lineup, and it's probably going to be that way for the rest of the season. So, if they can't kind of get things going, uh, you know, and on a positive note, then they might run into a little bit of trouble. Um, I know that the team itself is kind of still trying to come together and find their identity with all these uh, different superstars on that team. We've seen it happen before with uh, other teams where they've got plenty of superstars and plenty of firepower, but it takes a little time for everybody to get on the same page. And that might be one of the situations going on right now with everyone trying to figure out what the role is, especially when people are in and out of the lineup. Yeah. Uh, my only concern here really uh, would be that um, it is Kevin Durant. Uh, the other two don't really matter all that much. Uh, they've really struggled since he's been out. And uh, Kevin Durant, one-man team here. With uh, If you look at the uh, cleaning the glass lineup uh, things, uh, every lineup that is pretty much in plus is with Kevin Durant in it. And pretty much after that, you get into all these negative lineups. They're ones without Kevin Durant. Uh, no matter what combination sort of of James Harden and Kyrie Irving are in there, it's bad. Um I'm sure when Kevin Durant signed two years ago, um, I don't think he figured he'd be having to play center uh, half the time because DeAndre Jordan is pretty much unplayable these days. And um, playing Jeff Green at center, um, I guess you can get away with it versus some teams, but uh, that seems like a worse choice than DeAndre Jordan. I, I just, it concerns me that uh, this team who has two other quote unquote superstars is pretty much so dependent on Kevin Durant. Now, Kevin Durant's such a great player. You get that. But uh, being this reliant when you have somebody like uh, Irvin and Harden uh, seems a little weird here. Yeah, I think that the next couple of games is going to be really telling. Uh, I know that they've been on a bit of a slump, but when you've got that much firepower, I think that they'll find a way to turn it around and make things work a little bit. I think their next three games are against the Pacers, uh, Golden State, and the Kings, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, you know, they've got they've got a, a chance to kind of turn it around and, you know, kind of get things going on a positive note. This is a somewhat shortened season, so we definitely need to see them, you know, start picking things up a little bit. Uh, but with the all-star break just around the corner, um, 
they kind of really got to get things going. Well, that's a nice little lead in because that's the actual number seven topic here. We're going to go to the all-star game. Uh, for some reason, this is looking like it's going to be played. Um, why do you have an answer? Yeah. When, you know, I don't understand the whole concept of trying to even play an all-star game. To me, the NFL took the right route when it came to the, uh, the all-star festivities or pro bowl for the NFL. You kind of just honor people. You give them their due diligence when it comes to recognition, you know, give them applaud them here and there, you know, give them some props, but as far as having the all-star game, putting the best players in the league under the same building, and then you're going to send them back home afterwards to rejoin their teams in their cities. It just seems like there's a recipe for disaster there. I, I don't quite understand it. I don't know if there's any special safety protocols when it comes to having this particular tournament, but it, it almost seems like, something's bound to happen and it'd be very unfortunate if you had a string of players uh, that, you know, came down with the, uh, the COVID uh, virus, because then you might have a serious impact when it came to scheduling. Yeah. Uh, that concern really is there, but uh, I, I just don't understand the need for it. Uh, is anyone dying to have the all-star game? I mean, I, I guess Saturday night's a little fun with the three-point shootout, the dunk contest, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I haven't been interested in the dunk contest since Vince Carter last did it, and before that, since Michael Jordan and Dominique Wilkins were last doing it, really. So, I mean, I, I just don't understand the need for this. Uh, you want to pick fake teams. You want to have them play video games online, you know, whatever. I, I don't know if you're going to get the old guys who are all going to be on the all-star team to do that. But uh, I don't know. Have the damn rookie game. You play their little video games online for it. But I just can't see a need for this or understand why it has to be played other than TNT wants the money, the NBA wants the money. They aren't even barely putting people in arenas right now, and they want to have some stupid all-star game. Yeah, I just, like I said, I don't understand it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to come up with some logical reason. Like you said, the only thing I can really come up with is, you know, the money factor. I understand that the NFL, sorry, the NBA didn't uh, do really well financially when it came to last season in the bubble. And maybe they're trying to get as much TV time as they possibly can, you know, but like I said, to me, this just seems like a really bad idea. All you need is, you know, one bad strain of the virus to kind of, you know, get out there and it's bound to spread one way or another. Um, I could definitely see certain situations where they probably could have gone through a different route. Like you said, probably had the rookies play, you know, a 2K type of session or uh, I don't know. They're just different possibilities, different things they could have done. Uh, you know, maybe this would have been a perfect opportunity for some PR and uh, do some community outreach type of situations, but I don't, I don't understand it, but will I be watching it? Uh, probably so. Yeah. Uh, you're a little bit more casual of fan than I am. Does the all-star game appeal to you? Yeah. Uh, I think that that's exactly what it's aimed for. It's aimed at the more casual fan. Now, you know that uh, I like the NBA and uh, I don't, you know, if I had a choice, I'm obviously going to pick football first. That's my favorite sport, but I like the NBA and I'm more than happy to sit down and watch a match here and there. Uh, 
but I think that this all-star game is always aimed more towards the casual fan like me uh, trying to draw people in with the, the three-point shootout, the dunk competition, uh, you know, and then having the best of the best, you know, out on a scrimmage, uh, you know, so I, I get the reason why they're trying to put it out there. They're trying to obviously keep growing the league. It, it's the brand obviously has been growing for, you know, steadily for a long time now and they don't want to slow that pace down. So I get it. But to me, under the certain circumstances that we're in with COVID and everything, uh, I think this probably wasn't a good idea. But like I said, they're still going to get my viewership, so they're doing something right. All right. We'll move on past the All-Star game, and we'll move into some more players and teams sort of stuff. Uh, I wanted to talk about DeRozan and Aldridge and the Spurs team overall. Um, DeRozan is playing uh, just ridiculously well right now. Uh, as efficient as I've ever seen him. He's playmaking on assist. Um, he's in the last year of his contract. Um, the Spurs are playing really well, so it, it seems weird to bring up him as a trade chip. But uh, I, I think you could get a first-round pick for DeRozan. Now, Aldridge is starting to look a little old here. Uh, I, I don't know what he quite brings to you. He's in the last year of his deal as well. Uh I'm just curious what you think they could gather on the market. If you were the Spurs, would you trade them since you're playing so well right now? Uh, I mean, I watched them the other night and uh, without Aldridge and uh, that uh, just guard lineup of like Murray, White, DeRozan, uh, and Keldon Johnson were just running people off the floor. So um, I, I'm just curious what your thoughts on DeRozan, his value, and uh, would you trade him if you were the Spurs here since you're playing so well? You know, I think that the Spurs are in a very, you know, odd situation. They obviously are in sort of a rebuild mode, but they're playing really well for a rebuild team. Um, like you said, their aging stars are either getting old and starting to show their age or they've jumped ship and they're somewhere else. So if, if I'm the Spurs, I'm definitely going to try and shop a guy like DeRozan who's averaging, what, 20.2 uh, points per game right now he's playing really well and if you could package them together with one of your aging stars to get some sort of uh, future compensation something to help rebuild the team then I think you probably have to really consider it uh, again they're currently I, I'm trying to remember where they stand right now in the Western uh, I Conference. believe they're fifth or sixth I, I mean it rotates There's, you know yeah. every uh, second because everybody's sort of jumbled but they're uh, 14 and 11 I believe yeah, I think they I think they're currently sixth place. I mean, as it as it stands, they're a playoff team. And do you risk that? Because you know for sure that if they do go ahead and deal DeRozan and Aldridge, they're probably not going to make the playoffs. They'll probably start losing more games. Uh, but again, this maybe they get some compensation with some young talented players and we know that the Spurs uh, are do really well when it comes to developing young guys. So maybe they get guys to come in and play well enough for them to win and, you know, maybe sneak into the playoffs. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a very short term, uh, you know, type of uh, let's try to win now situation where I, I don't see them, even if they make the playoffs really making that big of a push. So to me as a franchise, I'd rather, you know, push my cards all in, if I can get uh, some compensation for these guys that are playing well right now, I do it uh, more for the long term. But uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I, again, it's 
are, do they want to win now and try to sneak into the playoffs, which even if they do, like I said, I don't think they'll make it far or would they rather get rid of the assets that they have now and uh, rebuild for the future? Yeah. I, I think they're doing that sort of nice little tweener line that the Rockets uh, did, you know, 15 years back or so where they're sort of, I, I wouldn't call them contenders, but they're keeping themselves, uh, you know, playoff, at least, you know, it's not a all out tank job, but uh, I, I, they've played uh, 25 games, uh, 22 of them have been in the Western conference. So, I mean, you think about it, they haven't even gone uh, to play the Eastern conference slate, which will be uh, much, much easier than the Western conference slate. So, I mean, I look for their record to even improve off the 14 and 11. So I just think it would be hard, especially to dump to Rosen since he's been so uh, really, really good. But uh, I'm thinking some of these teams, uh, Phoenix Suns, you know, I don't know if the Trailblazers could use him, but uh, a couple others might really take a look, uh, especially some of these Eastern Conference teams where they seem to be, you know, one, two players away. I, I don't think the Nets are in there, but it would be fun to add another shooter in there and see how that ball gets even more uh, distributed with uh, another shooter who can't defend it all, uh, just to see how far we could push this, if we could get a team who could score 160 and give up 160 all at the same time. But uh, just a really interesting decision here. I, I'm curious what you think DeRozan's value is uh, and Aldridge value is. I, I think you could really probably pull a, a first round pick right now from DeRozan as well as he played. I, I don't know if you could for Aldridge, but uh, I mean, he still gives you a little pick and pop shooting. Uh, his defense is worn down. He doesn't move like he does, but uh, I mean, that's a stretch big who can uh, hit the mid range for you. And you could always use an extra one of those around. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I get where you're coming from. Uh, I personally think that the big decision is going to come down to whether they want to win now or, you know, like I said, build for the future. What would I give up for DeRozan? He's playing really good, but I wouldn't give up a first for him. Uh, not right now. I think that if I could get some sort of package deal where I, I think it's more, more enticing, it's, it's more, um, it looks a lot more favorable for other teams if they can get DeRozan together with the package. Because uh, if I'm making a play for DeRozan, it's because I know that I'm going to make a really hard push in the playoffs. But I don't think that just anybody can really make a play. And then you get into the uh, the question of, you know, with these teams that do, are contenders, what do they have to offer? So uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see what's going to happen. Uh, I don't see him moving, to be honest with you. I think that they're going to keep him. They're going to try and make a push. Uh, but we'll see what happens going forward. Yeah, the one I am eyeing is Denver. I think he'd slot in nicely there uh, next to uh, Jamal Murray. You put uh, Murray, DeRozan, Porter, and Jokic all on the floor at the same time, uh, you know, mix and match uh, Millsap and uh, Will Barton. And uh, that becomes a little bit of uh, a pretty uh, nice team on offense. Now uh, they get even worse defensively because Gary Harris probably goes out of there. But um, I I have mixed emotions on Gary Harris. We'll have to bring up the nuggets at some other time and why I continue to watch Gary Harris uh, brick wide open threes. But uh, that's another conversation for another day. Uh, we'll move on to our next team, the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, we go from uh, playing good basketball uh, to playing uh, bad basketball. Now, of course, as soon as 
Uh, I put this on the list. They've won two in a row and their team's starting to come together. We'll ignore that. They still are way down here at 11 and 14. Now, I, I know they've had their COVID issues. A lot of their guys got really actually sick. It wasn't, you know, um, you know, the fake sitting out because you were close to someone. Uh, uh, the strain went through them. A handful of them got stuck in Oklahoma City and could not leave, could not practice. Uh, they've had other injuries. And um, so it, it's sort of hard to be like, oh, they've been bad. Why are they so bad? But uh, I'm just curious if you're starting to get a little concerned. 11 of 14, there are 13 teams above them, uh, you know, at least six above them for really the playoff spots that will be up for grabs. Are you in nervous territory uh, quite yet with this Dallas Mavericks team? I think you kind of have to be a little bit. I mean, we did expect them to be a little bit better than what they currently stand at. Um, I know that you had a lot of love for the Mavs in the preseason, but I, I thought that they would definitely be playing a lot better than they're looking right now. I know that they've had a lot of big contributions from guys like Bay and stuff, but I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this team. I think that they're in a, in, in one of those weird conundrums, you know, we all expect them to be a lot better than they are. And they're starting to kind of fall back from the rest of the pack, uh, especially as tight as the races in the West. I think that, they're definitely going to have to pick up their play if they want to even get close to making a push or making a run for anything. But as it stands right now, I think that there definitely is some cause for concern. Um, I wouldn't start ringing the alarm just yet, but I think that, like I said, there's definitely some, some reason for concern there. Yeah. Uh, I, I think my main reason is uh, for concern here is uh, Porzingis. Um, now he's coming back from another knee injury, but uh I haven't thought he's looked great coming back. He looks a little slower. He looks a little less aggressive. You know, he, it just seems like every time he comes back a little bit less athletic, um, a little bit slower, a little bit probably less confident that he wants to explode. You know, he's so big. I mean, probably overly big. You'd rather him be Kevin Durant size than, you know, the 7-2 frame he has, you know, right now. But uh, he's supposed to be their number two. He's being paid like their number two. I, I don't think you can trade him because his contract is so large. I don't know that anybody wants, you know, Chris Stapps at that price, despite how good he possibly could be. What have you made of Chris Stapps this year? Are, are you getting nervous that the injuries are starting to make him – someone who will probably be a great role player in the future for a team and not somebody who's a number two that can help carry you to the title. Sorry, really quick. I just want to say, uh, I said Tyler Bay in the beginning of that last one, you might want to cut that. All right. Just, just cause he's only played four games, <laughs> but, uh, all right. I'm going to go back into it now. Yes. He played their four COVID games. Um, I mean, when it comes to Brzingas, I think that there has to be a little bit of concern there because uh, when it comes to the big guys, you always know these type of injuries tend to nag and some of them don't really go away. It takes away from their explosiveness. They're having to carry around that big frame, which makes a really big difference compared to some, some of the smaller guys. I know that right now I believe he's third in his team uh, as far as minutes played per game, but he also hasn't played every single game. I think he's at about almost half of the games or maybe a little bit more than that. 
I, I am a little concerned. I know that his potential, his ceiling is really high. Um, of course, I've said that in the last two games, he scored like 30. So I will say he, he has looked better, but he doesn't look as uh, dynamic as, you know, when he first broke in in New York. Uh, it, it just looks like with each knee injury, a, a little bit is gone. Uh, sort of like Zadrunas Elgoskis, uh, you know, early, early with the Cavs, he was, you know, a nice uh, fleet-footed, uh, huge big. And as each foot injury sort of took away, he becomes a little more statuesque, a little bit more statuesque. And I, I'm just worried if these knee injuries are starting to bang away at that big body and he's not quite the, the unicorn we all thought he was. He's more just the tall guy who can shoot now. I mean, you know, I, I understand that he's had two really good games, so it, it alters his numbers a little bit. But even so, he's still averaging 20 points per game. So he's not playing horrible. I mean, we just, you know, uh, talked up, uh, um, you know, somebody else on the Spurs who was literally averaging the same amount of points per game. So I understand that he is looked at as more of a leader, but he's not playing bad ball. He's just not playing the type of ball that we expect him to be playing. So uh, that's probably one of the reasons why it really stands out. Um, but I, I, I still am a little bit concerned when it comes to the injuries. Uh, big man injuries always scare me a little bit. So, yeah. Uh, what have you made of the play of uh, Jason Richardson so far? Um, I, I think we both thought in the offseason trading Curry and uh, bringing in sort of a, a 3 and D guy, we say 3 and D guy, and really he's had one really good year shooting the three and the rest have been sort of mediocre. That trend continues again this year where he's sort of mediocre shooting the three. Um, Dallas's defense is terrible. Now he was one of the guys with COVID and was out. So, you know, I mean – you don't practice for like two and a half weeks and then you're thrown into an NBA game. You know, the first couple of days back are going to not be pretty. They weren't, but uh, I think I really liked this move. And now I'm thinking it's hurting them because if you look at the Dallas Maverick numbers, they're getting a lot of open three point shots, much like they did last year. And uh, yet they aren't making them. Seth Curry would be making them uh, speaking of, COVID people who have not recovered well, but uh, in the uh, theoretical world where COVID didn't exist and Seth Curry was healthy and was getting open threes, he would be making them. I'm just wondering, maybe they went a little too much uh, trying to get defensive guys on there, and now they're hurting their offense by not surrounding Luca with a bunch of three-point shooting. If you look at the on-off stats, when Luca's on there, they're scoring like 115, which is good, but not where they were scoring last year. And when he's off the floor, uh, literally they're one of the worst offenses in the league. Uh, and this is offenses that are in the realm of Minnesota and Detroit. So um, what do you make of the Jason Richardson deal? Do you think uh, wait it out, give it a little more time? This season's a little COVID-y and just weird. Or are you a little concerned that that one great year where he got said contract was more of an outlier and the other year surrounding it is more what he is as a player. You know, it's, it's uh, for me personally, I, I have mixed emotions about it because I've seen plenty of situations where players have a really good season and then they sign some big contract and they end up somewhere else and they just don't perform as well. I feel like a lot of times certain players just play well in certain markets against certain uh, opponents 
And I think this might be one of those situations. He's obviously not been hitting, uh, shooting the three really well. And one of the reasons why he was brought in was mostly for his defensive prowess. But yeah, I understand that he hasn't been, you know, there all season long either, but he, he just, he's not playing up to the type of contract that he earned. So am I concerned about it? Yeah. Uh, am I jumping ship? Maybe not yet. Uh, I still want to see this play out a little bit more. Um, I think that definitely after the all-star break, once we kind of, uh, you know, get probably about a week or so into it afterward, I, I think it'll be more telling if this type of play continues, but maybe there's just a little, you know, a few adjustments that have to be made to their uh, gameplay style and maybe that helps them. But uh, again, this is just one of those moves where we were not a hundred percent sure if it's, if they might've just gone too deep trying to get defensively better as opposed to just kind of sticking with what they had already, which, you know, was probably a little bit better offensively. So we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm going to give it a little bit more time. I'm not jumping ship, but I, I definitely am a little concerned. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the other thing that concerns me a little bit is the total reliance on Luca to essentially do anything. Essentially this team is starting to morph into the Houston Rockets where it's, put Luca, give him the ball and, you know, surround him with four shooters and just let him drive dish. And I mean, that was successful for the Rockets and, you know, it'd probably be successful for the Mavericks too. I don't think it would be successful in playoff wins, but uh, this team was so, you know, offensively fun to watch last year. I, I just really hope they don't devolve into, you know, that Rocket style for the past like six years where it's one guy dribbles, one guy runs the pick and they just surround him with shooters and he's there's driving, pulling up for a three or kicking out. I, I just, I don't want that. Cause I think this team could be so much uh, more entertaining to watch on the offensive end. Yeah. And I get that, but you know, then again, it's all, it's all easily said and done. You still have to make your shots. So even if you surround him with shooters, it doesn't really matter if his shooters aren't, you know, draining any buckets. You can't really just put everything on Luca. He, as well as he's playing, he's playing out of his mind. Uh, in my opinion, he's probably one of the best players right now, uh, if not the top player right now, uh, individually. But you, you can't, you just can't win games with just one guy unless you surround him with the right type of talent. And I think that they might have probably bit up, bit off a little more than they could chew, trying to fix that defense as opposed to just sticking with that really good offense they had. Yeah, and I I mean, their books all clear out next year except for Doncic and uh, Porzingis, so it might be a full reset, but uh, like this year, I, I, I don't know if they have any moves to make. Um, I, I don't know what Porzingis' trade value is on the market. I certainly don't think they, if the, they call the Wizards straight up Bradley Beal for Porzingis, I, I don't think the Wizards are saying yes to that. Do you think they would? I don't think so. I think that right now uh, he's probably a little more valuable than Porzingis would be. So uh, I don't see that move happening, but then again, how many moves do we see that no one really saw coming, you know, on any given NBA season. So I'm not going to discount it just yet, but I, I personally don't see it happening. We are talking about the wizards as well, but uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you make a, make a good point there. They might trade him for Tim Hardaway jr. For all I know. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds like the type of move they would make. All right. Uh, let's move on. Well, no, first, let me ask you, uh, you think this Mavericks team makes the playoffs? They're, they're pretty far behind, but uh, I think they have 
at least room for growth. But uh, this West, it's it's very beastly. I'm going to ask the same question about the next team. I'm a little more confident in them than uh, the way this West is unfolding right now. Well, I, I'll say I'll give you two answers to that question. One, I would love to see them in the playoffs just because I think that he's Lucas is such a, an explosive player. He's so entertaining to watch. Well, do I think they'll make it? I, I don't think so because they just seem – I know they won a couple games as of late, but they, they seem to be falling further and further behind slowly, slowly. And uh, it almost seems like every step they take forward, they take two back. So uh, I don't think that they'll make it, uh, but I would definitely love to see them in there. Yeah. All right. So we'll go across to Eastern Conference team. I'm a little concerned about um, the Miami Heat. Now, uh, early on, I, I was not quite as concerned off to their slow start. Now, they've also had their COVID issues. But, uh, I mean, we can pretty much say that about every team at some stretch of the season. But uh, they're now 10 and 14. They're sitting in the 10 spot in the East. Um I know they're trying to protect Butler and Drogic and their main guys and, you know, utilize Hero and Robinson and their other young guys to try to grind through this regular season to get into the playoffs, to make a run much like they did last year. But uh, they're starting to slip into dangerous territory. We're no longer the first 10 games into the season. We're 25 games into the season. That's a third of the way through. It's, you know, it's not like, panic panic time but uh we're starting to round into the stretch here um what do you make of the heat what have you seen of the heat and how nervous are you about the heat i'm very nervous about the heat and i will say uh the sixers and the bucks probably don't want to see them in the first round of the playoffs however though yeah no (laughs) i don't think there's a couple of teams that don't but I'm really nervous. And the reason I'm really nervous is because I actually had them as one of my dark horses in the East uh, in the preseason. I thought that they would continue their play the, uh, from the previous season in the bubble. I thought they played really well, uh, especially towards the end of that uh, little mini season we had. And, and I, I saw them, you know, they kind of kept the same core of players. So I thought that the growth and uh, camaraderie that they built, you know, in the bubble would help them once we got into the uh, this longer extended season, uh, still shorter than a regular season. But it, it seems to not have had much of an effect. And uh, I know that a lot of people foresaw this coming. I thought that they'd be playing a lot better than they are now. Um, yes, we are a third, way, a third of the way into the season, so it's definitely a little concerning. But uh, again, I try to give it about a week after the uh, the All-Star break before I really start sounding any type of alarms. Uh, I think that being in the East, they still have a shot to start playing better and maybe kind of, you know, claw their way back into one of those uh, bottom spots. But they're going to have to start to really pick up their game if they're going to do that because uh, lately they haven't looked really good. Yeah. Um, Tyler Hero, the apple of everyone's eye last year in the bubble in the playoffs. Uh, some would have thought you could have traded LeBron James for Hero uh, last uh, year. Um, I wasn't quite one of those people, but uh, we, everyone was freaking out about him. He has been, I mean, I bad, really bad this year. It, it's not even like he's been okay. He's been bad this year. He, They're trying to give him more minutes to offset with Dragic. Um, how long do you grind away with him? 
playing poor basketball and how long before you just are tell Dragic and Butler, you got to carry us right now because the young guys aren't doing their job. Well, I mean, listen, he hasn't been playing horrible. He's shooting 45% from the field. He's averaging what about 17 points per game. I know that's not what we expected from him. We expected, you know, a, a much better performance, especially the way he ended the bubble season. He's definitely not performing up to the expectations, but I think you got to give him a little bit more time. Um, having him play better is only going to improve your team that much more. Uh, so again, if the type of play continues, you know, going a week after the the All Star break, then then I'm I'm probably cons- you know considering moving some pieces around. But until then, I'm going to give him a little bit more time. I think that he can turn it around. Yeah, uh, I I think more the uh, I, this is probably over analytical for you, but uh, he has a minus in uh, a lot of their uh, lineups that would you know that play, and then his overall uh, it's not a perfect stat. His overall plus minus on the year is uh, minus three point six. So it, it's just they aren't playing well when he's in there. Now you know a part of that is he's trying to carry the team when you know, the actual stars, I, as much as we want to make Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero and even Bam stars, their two players are Goran and Butler. And uh, those guys have both missed time. Uh, they've been in and out, and I, I think they've been trying to keep them healthy. But uh, I, I just, I, I'm a little, I think I'm a little more concerned about this Heat squad uh, than I am the Mavericks squad, probably because the Mavericks are younger and relying on younger players. Uh, it just seems a little dangerous uh, if they have to go to the whip and really start trying to push uh, Jimmy Butler and Goran Dragic to play uh, more and more minutes to try to get wins here um, and uh, have to bench these young guys who they're trying to give minutes to and trying to win games, and they just aren't winning games. Yeah, like I said, uh, they... When, when this season started, we thought they would make a lot more moves than they actually did. They probably felt really comfortable with the core players that they had from the bubble. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I had them as dark horse. Now, that particular lineup that we saw uh, in those uh, bubble playoffs hasn't you know, been playing pretty much. We've had guys in and out. I think Butler's played, what, uh, 10, 12 games, something like that. Yeah, I uh, believe he's played 12. Uh, Dragic has played 17. So, I mean, you know, not having the consistency in your lineup is also going to affect the overall play of everyone else. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I'm also not jumping ship on Tyler just yet. I think that he can pick up his play as long as they kind of bring the the core players back and kind of uh, get into some sort of continuity when it comes to minutes. I think that it'll help the entire team and they could probably pick up their play a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Also, uh, I want to throw Kendrick Nunn in here too. He was also very much loved last year and he's been worse than Tyre Hero, uh, negative lineup wise. Uh, He's also a culprit. And uh, if you want to look at the lineups uh, with Hero and uh, Nunn and Robinson together playing all three, it's just really, really bad. Um, What about the Heat? Do they make the playoffs? do you have more concerns about the Mavericks uh, or the Heat? Uh, I assume you probably have more concern about the Mavericks because they play in the West, but uh, 
I I see more talent on the Mavericks than I do the Heat here. So I, I don't know which I, I probably am leaning a little more concerned for the Heat. Well, see, I personally see a more individual talent in Dallas, but I see more team talent in Miami. And I think that because they play in the East and they probably have a better overall team as far as contributions go, if they can get everyone on the same page and everyone healthy, I, I think that they're a better overall team. So playing in the East, I would probably say that I'm more concerned about the Mavericks going forward. All right. So he's more concerned about the Mavericks. I'm more concerned about the Heat. Let's move on to a team that's been surprisingly good of late. Sacramento Kings up to 12 and 12, seven and three in their last 10. Uh, they're exciting. They don't play a lot of defense. They score a lot of points. Um, Marvin Badley uh, is not that good a player, but De'Aaron Fox, Tyrese Halliburton, Buddy Heald, um, Rashawn Holmes are all very exciting to watch, and uh, they're fun to watch. Um, are you liking this Kings team? Do you think they have a chance at the playoffs here? I mean, it really depends. It's, I know they've been playing well as of late, but can they continue this type of play? Uh, and if they, if you could guarantee me that they can continue this type of play, maybe they can claw their way into one of those other spots. But, um, I, I mean, I, do you really see them competing against the big guys? You know, the the Jazz, the Lakers type. I, I don't see it. I don't think that they can keep up with these guys. Don't And they have been playing really well. I'm not trying to trash talk them. Uh, the few games that I've been able to actually watch them play, uh, they seem to, you know, really have really good energy when they go out there. But the whole makeup of the team, I just don't think it's quite there yet. I think that they would need to add some more pieces um, in order to convince me that they'd really be ready to make a push. Yeah, I, I should also give a shout out to Harrison Barnes. Um, he's not a superstar, but he's a really, really solid, good player in this league. And uh, I, I think he gets overlooked a little bit, especially here in the uh, with the Sacramento Kings. But uh, he's been really solid for them. And uh, when they could throw Barnes and Heald and Fox and Holmes and Halliburton out there, uh, I, I do think this is a team that contend for that six, seven, eight spot in the Western Conference. Now, I, I do think they will probably go through stretches much like they have this year where they're on a stretch right now where they're really, really uh, hot and playing good basketball. And then they'll probably go through a stretch again, like they did early in the season when they couldn't get any wins. It also helps that they have some weird thing over the Denver nuggets and have beaten them three times this year. I don't know quite what that is because Jokic is averaging about 55 points a game on them, but the nuggets can't seem to get a win over them. But uh, I am intrigued by this team, uh, especially since um Really, uh, Marvin Bagley has been a complete bust, and uh, he's not even really playing a ton of minutes for them. But um, really just like that uh, five, uh, really love the way Halliburton's been playing. Uh, Fox, who uh, got off to a slow start and did not like, I think is playing really well. Um, Buddy Hilt shooting the ball well. Just really enjoy them. And uh, it sort of seems like Rashawn Holmes has sort of found his home and his game uh, here. Uh Bench-wise, they don't offer me a lot, but uh, I, I really do like uh, that uh, top five, top six uh, on their roster. Yeah, I think that they have a lot of really good young players, and they have a lot of guys that are definitely trying to make a name for themselves in this league. But I, I just don't think they're deep enough to really make a push. So I, I'm probably not as high on them as you are, 
um, but they have been playing well as of late, and I think they definitely deserve some credit for that. Well, I, I'm going to force you to watch Kings games for the next two weeks. Oh, okay. I think <laughs> I think I've actually watched like two or three this season. So you can enjoy some Tyrese Halliburton. All right, we'll move on uh, to a team I pretty much said I would refuse to talk about all year, but um, they're making me a little nervous. Uh, not nervous like uh, they're not going to make the playoffs, but uh, I, I think they had eight losses in April by, you know, last year. And right now they sit at 16 and eight, the bucks. Um, is this all them trying to do different stuff? I, I, they are trying to do different things defensively. They're messing with stuff. They're still the top offense in the league. Uh, how much of this is tinkering and how much of this is, Hmm. Uh, did they trade all their depth and are they no longer that good? I mean, that, that is a little bit of a question uh, that definitely pops up when you think about this team. You know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like they definitely gave up some of their death and it probably hurt them in the long term because it seemed like they were starting to put together a really good contender. Um, and not that they're not a contender. When you got Giannis, you're always going to be a contender. But it almost seems like they took a bit of a step back, at least in my opinion, uh, uh, to you know the casual observer. It seems like they took a bit of a step back. Uh, as opposed to the last couple of seasons, I always felt like, okay, they improved a little bit more and they might make a better run this year. And for this season, I'm just not as excited. I don't know exactly what it is. I know that they've been playing lights out. I know that Giannis is like at a ridiculous, like what, 65% from the field. Uh, he's always going to be playing well. But the team overall seems like it's lost a step. And I, I can't quite pinpoint exactly what departure uh, would have affected that. I know that you probably had a lot more in-depth knowledge uh, about this team, but I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not concerned uh, about this team as a whole. Uh, I do think that they probably got a little bit worse, though. Uh, I, I'm in between. I'll, I'll throw some defensive things at you and uh, try not to make your head explode analytically. But um, offensively, I, I think they're doing just fine. They're scoring at the exact same rate. Like I said, they're the number one offensive team in the league. Now, some of the defensive stuff that does have me wonder, um, they might just be fooling around in the regular season trying to figure stuff out to be ready for the playoffs because, you know, really – Whatever number they win in the regular season, none of us are going to care about. Um, they have started trying to do in spots is switch pick and rolls, uh, which is not a bud thing. He never used to do that. I have noticed that. And the other weird anomaly, uh, the Bucs uh, run a defense that uh, sort of gives open threes to uh, certain, sh certain shooters in certain spots on the floor. Uh, and right now, those people are shooting in those spots uh, around like 42 to 43%, which is like a, a, about a 10% jump from what it's been the last three years. Uh, so that sort of stuff makes me think this is a little bit of them trying, you know, switch and pick and rolls and stuff and trying to learn new defenses that they can come up with in the playoffs, trying to find new styles that they can tinker with. And some of it, I, I think, just might be you know, random shot luck by the opposing team just happening to shoot well off of, you know, about a, I think Bud's been there three or four year window 
when they've played the exact same defense, they're pretty much giving up the exact same number of threes and open threes, and people are just hitting them more. Um, I'm going to make your brain explode even more, but uh, the Celtics and the Raptors uh, also uh, employ the same type defense, and uh, teams are both shooting higher percentages on them as well, and it's uh, sort of been a weird thing in the community of is it the defense that makes these certain shooters miss when they give open threes to certain players, or is it just random luck? I, I don't know, but uh, I was just curious, how much of this do you believe it's just them tinkering uh, with like defensive stuff in the regular season? Because I, I think those guys also know that uh, they could win every game in the regular season and nobody's going to care because they care what they do in the playoffs. Yeah, I I mean I guess it would be considered if I had to choose I think that it I'd probably lean more towards tinkering. Uh and this is not coming off of you know some great knowledge I have of this team. This is just coming off like I said them making the type of moves that I I was a little concerned about. But yeah, I may like they're basically a shoo-in for the playoffs. I mean, this team obviously a lot of people have them as a favorite in the East. Uh, maybe some people now have the nets, but that's neither here nor there. And when you have almost a consensus favorite, I think that they're probably more concerned with trying to figure out how they're going to get over the hump. Uh, they know that they almost a shoe in to make it to the you know, Easter conference championship. And once you get to that point, it's all about, you know, making it to the big dance. And, and like you said, they're probably just trying to figure out what's going to work best for them. Uh, so that's that's probably what the way I'd lean. I think it'd be a little more tinkering. I'll be sure to send you those three teams, uh, defensive uh, uh, shot charts and uh, heat zones, uh, <laughs> so you can study them with uh, perilous ambition. Um, I, I do worry about their depth too. It, it definitely looks like they aren't quite as deep. Uh, Giannis is playing more minutes than he ever has. Um, but uh, I'm not worried. But the eight loss number. Uh, for a Bucks team who we watched the last couple of years uh, not have eight losses for, you know, four months at a time and to have eight losses already, uh, a little concerning. That being said, they're, you know, one game out of first in the East. So I don't think it's all that alarming. Um, and they're 8-0 in their division. So, you know, I, I promised I wouldn't talk about the Bucks, but uh, I just the eight-loss number and the fact that they're point differential – is a little bit uh, lower than it has been the last couple season. Uh, just thought I'd get your concern level regular season wise for Bucks, and then I promise we won't talk about the Milwaukee Bucks until the playoffs. <laughs> That's really the only time they become uh, important to talk about. Unless of course they lose like four in a row, and then I'll have to put them back on the list. Sound, sound the alarms, buddy. All right, we'll move on to a team that is uh, a little disappointing and uh, sort of in a little bit of a disarray. I, I don't think you and me were ever uh, wholehearted believers in this Atlanta Hawks team. And uh, now I don't think the Atlanta Hawks are wholehearted believers. Uh, we're hearing the Lloyd Pierce uh, firing rumors starting to circle. Um, this team really hasn't been fully healthy. Uh, I know it's shocking that uh, Gallinari, not to been a, a bastion of health. Um, it, it's a new one coming that Gallinari, not always healthy, uh, but uh, Young's been out. Uh, there were some 
sniping about the play style of Trey Young a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I don't think everybody on the team uh, enjoys uh, him holding the ball for 24 seconds and then jacking a fadeaway three. Whether it goes in or not, uh, I'm not sure that's the play style that uh, teammates really enjoy. And uh, now probably their best player of the year so far, DeAndre Hunter, is out for a handful of weeks. Um, what do you make of this Hawks team? And uh, I I don't know if I guarantee them a playoff spot right now. Um, the Heat are lurking there. The Raptors are, you know, an eight spot there. Uh, the Knicks are hot and cold. The Cavs are hot and cold. Uh, it, I don't know if I'm guaranteeing Hawks playoffs right now, uh, especially with the way this team is uh, playing defense. I still think they can get into the playoffs. I think that, you know, if once they get a, a healthy young um, and I don't know exactly how long Hunter's going to be out. I know that he's having surgery uh, for that meniscus uh, situation. So maybe once young starts playing, you know, uh, more consistently, they, they'll, they'll be, they're only what a couple games out of playoff spot. If the season were to end right now, they're only what two games out of the playoffs. No, they're, they're a seven seed right now. They won yesterday. So they're, they're rotating in the uh, uh, seven, eight, nine, 10 spots uh, day to day. And this is with guys that have been in and out of the lineup. So I think that if they can get a little more consistent play, a little health, you know, that they can get healthy for a good period of time where they can string together, you know, uh, some really good performances. I think that, they're good enough. They got good enough players to, you know, make it to the playoffs. So I'm not too concerned about them not making it. Um, my biggest concern with them is health. And they've seemed to have a, a lot of issues with health pretty much all season long. So that's my only concern with this team. I, I still think they're a really hot young team. And as long as they're healthy, they're, they're probably uh, going to get in regardless. Um, Lloyd Pierce, uh, does he last uh, or do they uh, can him in the, uh, bring in some new voice. I think that if they don't make the playoffs, which I, I still think they're going to do it. If they don't make the playoffs, I think he's gone. But if, if they can somehow get into the playoffs, I think it's enough to, to save at least one more season. All right. Those are our seven on seven. We'll now go to our movie review. Uh, Achilles, where can we find you? As always, you can find me on Twitter at TD Achilles, or you can find me on Facebook as Achilles Rain. And be sure to watch out for our special episode on the weekend. Uh, we're going to do our top 30 NBA players, me and Achilles. So uh, that should be a fun show. Be sure to watch out for that. And on to the movie review we go. All right, we're going to go to Rita Cinema and do a double feature. Midnight Sky, One Night in Miami. We're going to start off with Midnight Sky. Did you find this movie anything more than a couple of depressing people sitting around waiting to die? Was there more meaning to it? No, I didn't find anything to like in this movie. Let me tell folks about it. Um, I'm sure there must be some under you know underlying meaning to this movie but that's one of the problems with it if you can you know you have to just try to figure I, I don't know what it was um anyway the midnight sky has been out for a couple of months now uh, it's hardly new anymore and it's on netflix uh it got a lot of attention and a lot of advanced pr because uh it's directed by george clooney 
And it has a screenplay by Mark L. Smith, who I found out also wrote The Revenant, um, a movie that got quite a bit of attention a few years ago. Um, it has an, a, really an A-list cast, uh, including Clooney um, and Felicity Jones, Kyle Chandler, Sophie Rundle, uh, David Ilowo, although I'm sure I did not pronounce his name correctly. I should have looked that up. Um, all of whom, the, you know, among others in the cast, but, um, you know, all these are all good uh, actors who, you know, who have um, a body of work that's well thought of. Uh, so anyway, The Midnight Sky is uh, described as a post-apocalyptic tale uh, of a scientist who is racing to contact the a crew of a astronauts um, that are, uh, this crew of astronauts are out exploring inhabitable places in space. They have found one called, I think, K-23 uh, near Jupiter. And he wants to warn them not to return to Earth. Now, the thing is, we don't really know why um, throughout this whole thing. We know some great catastrophe is taking place on Earth. But as far as I could tell, unless I fell asleep in some part, we don't know exactly what that catastrophe is. It's just some disaster that's ruined, you know, that, just that's making Earth uninhabitable. Nuclear gases and uh, the planet possibly had frozen over. Well, uh, it wasn't we don't totally know. clear, but I went, it was cold, so. Well, we were in the Arctic. That's why well, it was cold. Yes, but maybe we were in Chicago and everywhere is now the Arctic. No, I, I well, anyway, I, we don't know. We just, we're, we're left of, you know, kind of guess on that one. Anyway, this scientist, um, he is at a research center on the, in the Arctic. He's in the Arctic alone at this point um, because in this Arctic research station, everyone else, we see them all leaving and they're, they're frantic. They're gathering on a, on a plane because of some global catastrophe. But as I said, we're very unclear about that. And I kind of thought, well, you know, they're getting on a plane and they're going somewhere. It's not going to be any better where they're going. I, and you never really find out anything about these people or what happens or, you know, you just know that there's some catastrophe. And um, he is now alone. Um, and uh, he is, um, and frankly, I'm not sure why he's left alone or why he doesn't go other than that he says he's staying behind. Um, and he's alone to try to contact the crew from this one, and he's going to try to contact this crew, crew that is on the one remaining space station um, that's out, uh, you know, away from Earth, the name of which is Ether. Um, and he is joined here at this Arctic Research, uh, Research Center by a young girl who does not ever speak in, in the movie at all. Um, well, maybe a few words at some point, um, but she doesn't speak. And we're sort of led to believe that this child was left behind uh, inadvertently by one of the scientists because there's a few lines of dialogue. My daughter is missing when they're loading up the plane and this kind of thing. Um, but other than that, we really don't know who she is either. Um, and then throughout uh, his stay there at this research center, there are these flashbacks uh, to his younger days uh, when he was doing his research and, uh, you know, what he went through. And um, there he has all the, uh, you know, it, it tells a little of his life. And apparently, um, you know, he had a romance with this woman and 
there could have been a daughter, but we don't really know all of that uh, as well. And um, uh, anyway, he he uh, finds out while he's on this at this research. Uh, center and he's trying to contact the crew of Ether. Um, he finds out that the uh, communications equipment in the tower or whatever they're using to communicate um, is not strong enough where he is. So he's going to have to leave that research station and go to another one. Um, so he takes off with this little girl on um, this vehicle, this, uh, you know, like motorbike kind of thing, packs up his dialysis equipment and um, they dress in warm clothing and they set off across the, the Arctic. Um, and then there are a couple of little stories. Uh, they stop for the night in this one place where they can be inside. And um, the next morning uh, it collapses into the, you know, the ice break, the ice that it's on breaks and it collapses into this, this is, I'm telling this part, not because it matters that much to the story, but because it's an example uh, to me of just one of the more stupid scenes in the movie in that they're on, out in the Arctic where it's obviously sub-zero temperatures. There's wind, there's snow, there's ice, and they fall into the ice cold water. He loses all his medical equipment. So, you know, eventually, you know, I guess he's going to die anyway, but everybody's going to die. That's the whole point of the movie. <laughs> yes. But the thing is, he gets out of this ice water, gets back on his little bike with a little girl and takes off. And I'm like, he would have died immediately <laughs> in that cold water. And then how does soaking wet, he get back on in sub-zero temperatures and takes off for this uh, communication station that he's going to, and he makes it, you know, I, I mean, it's just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And I don't know if I missed something there, but I think he would have died immediately from hypothermia when he hit that cold water. So that that's all I'm, I'm saying there. Um, in the meantime, we have life of the crew on the, uh, out at the space station. And of course, there are all sorts, there's a whole other story going on there. There's all sorts of, uh, you know, they have no idea, this space crew, of what's happening on Earth. And, um, but there's all kinds of crazy events going on there and disasters and one of them gets hurt and uh, eventually they are trying, they do eventually have communication with um, uh, the George Clooney character uh, on Earth, where he tells them what's happening. Um, but you have, you know, they walk in space, they have to repair the ship. They, you know, it's all, it's so predictable, so predictable. Um, and the, and frankly, I didn't even think the special effects were that good. While they were out working on the spaceship, I, I mean, I felt like I was looking at a little toy spaceship. <laughs> turning around in space, which is exactly what it was when they were filming it. Um, you know, like a model. I don't know. I just thought the, I didn't even think the special effects uh, were very good. So to cap off the stupidity of this movie in my mind, um, by the end, we find out that this um, that George Clooney, the, this scientist who, who has, you know, who's an old dying man now, you know, stuck in the Arctic, um, reaches the captain, Sully, who is played by uh, Felicity Jones, uh, on the spaceship. And it turns out that Sully is his daughter. 
her. He didn't even know about. And I thought of all the billions of people who could be up on that spaceship, it's his daughter. And I am that way. I probably should have given a little spoiler alert because you don't know that to the end. Yeah, no one cares about the movie by that point. <laughs> and not only that, she's pregnant and her, uh, the, the co-captain of the uh, ship. He's is dying the and they're turning away to <laughs> planet Jupiter to float into space well, and die as well. So. And I guess that's the whole point. Um, you know, she and her co-captain who are partners and are expecting a baby are going to be the earthlings that make it to K-23. And so Augustine is his, is his, is the George Clooney character, you know, he founded this, uh, you know, planet that could support, sustain life. And now his grandchild will be the one to start the new civilization. That's the most I could pull out of this movie, because believe me, you don't really know what the heck the story is. And, and, um, but she and, uh, her co-captain, um, set course for K-23 and that's kind of the end of the story. I frankly thought the acting was bad. I thought the story was aimless. Um, if there was a moral that was associated with climate change or something, I, it was in, totally in lost. Um, bad writing, bad direction. I thought the special effects were bad. The music wasn't too bad. Um, it, was, it was fairly good. And I will say some of the scenes in the Arctic, you know, were, were, were nicely done. The, the snow scenes when they're out traveling in the Arctic, the wind and the snow and the weather and, you know, they're traveling through that what weren't too bad. But I'm sorry, I cannot think of anything good to say much about this movie. Well, your recap was longer than I appeared <laughs> because this movie was terrible. And I basically would have, sad man sits in snow, communicates with... <laughs> astronaut daughter who isn't <laughs> real in half the movie and then real on the spaceship and and he doesn't even know he has a daughter until he finds out like i say i mean what's and then one crew member dies by space junk the other yes. two float to their death on the poisonous earth of radiation because they made a promise to their well, they now, go back to their families and they're gonna die now probably radiated families, I, I'm assuming, or they skipped town and are living on planet Jupiter. But uh, nonetheless, um, terrible film. Um, George Clooney should probably have his director's guild card <laughs> removed because he hasn't made a good movie directing wise pretty much ever. And uh, this one probably is the worst one he's done. Uh, this is another Netflix fake out. They load it with a bunch of celebrities that we all know and are willing to watch and throw a bunch of fancy names up there. And of course, we all stream it. We at least streamed it twice, possibly four times, because I'm guessing we both fell asleep at some point during the film <laughs> and had to rewatch it. So technically, it got four streams from this <laughs> crew. And Netflix can show to all their people that all these people watch this it, household right? watched the movie four times so it must be the greatest thing well ever. some of the folks out there who fell asleep may not have watched it again if they were smart i only watched but it through so i, I found nothing it. redeeming about this at all it was very boring and worthless and you know, I thought back to the 1950s when I, I was a child then. I saw a lot of those dopey space movies from the 50s that were better than this. And Seriously. I 
don't know what I could say good part wise other than I guess the Arctic scenes looked sort of cool, but they um, were the music yeah. wasn't too bad. Other yeah. than that, uh, <laughs> they used Sweet Caroline, which oh, I, it just write that I off. That was terrible. That whole scene was terrible. Also, that thing must cost like two dollars to purchase the rights to, because apparently everyone in the world has the rights to Sweet Caroline. Um, <laughs> oh dear, I don't know what to say good about this. It was a bad movie, and I was spending 90% of my time on the iPad trying to keep my mind away from having to focus on this for long periods of time. Um, well, it was long, it was boring too. Yes, that was the other thing. Was, it was slow and boring. Mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't even really hold your attention. Well, from you also of sort time. of knew what George Clooney's life was leading to, which was Oh, death. it was totally predictable, <laughs> the whole thing. And uh, with such a, I, I'm putting quotes, all-star cast, really Clooney's the all-star one and maybe facility jokes but it has a lot of good actors yeah uh, kyle chandler a solid yeah. actor but uh he was playing coach taylor only not as entertaining <laughs> as the true. actual coach taylor so so true <laughs> it might have been better if we had uh clear eyes full hearts can't lose as they exited the <laughs> spacecraft and uh shot for earth as they were going to be poisoned and eradicated but um Anyway, bad movie. Yeah. I don't have much more to say. Do you have no, anything else? No. Uh, what do you go rating wise on this? Well, one? I gave it a two. I've not given any movie a one, but this one was close. <laughs> you know, I gotta say that I can't think of any reason not to give it a one other than perhaps there were times when it was interesting to look at, but that's not why you watch a movie. <laughs> gave it a two just yeah. because it's hard to make movies. So yes. the ability to shoot a movie from beginning to end and get it put together and made automatically gets it a two. So, yeah. and I still like oh, George Clooney. So. We really didn't do the spoiler about the little girl. Oh, that she's a figment of his imagination. Figment of his kidneys failing, yes. I believe. Which again, I or was sitting on an Arctic planet by himself. And I was like creating. shaking my head at the end when I, re- you know, it was like, I, well, you figure it out. It's pre- it, one more predictable thing that happens. You yes. Know? All right. We'll move on and we'll go into a, a different type of movie. One night in Miami, uh, directed by Regina King. So, uh, a little bit exciting there. Uh, what did you make of One Night in Miami? Well, this movie I think is very worth watching. It was I really enjoyed it. It was it's a good movie. I don't want to say great, but it it's good, very good. Um, it's available on Amazon Prime um, when you have a subscription. Free when you have a subscription. Yes. Yeah, and well, um, it's on Amazon. Amazon Prime, Prime. not yeah. technically free because you're paying. Right, for you're paying, Prime. but if you have a subscription, you don't have to rent the movie. Is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, it is a fictionalized account of an evening with four iconic black men getting together as friends on February 25th, 1964, and the four characters, uh, the four true life characters, of course, are Cassius Clay, uh, the boxer, um, who became Muhammad Ali. At the time, in 1964, this was before he had converted to Islam and changed his name. The famous football player, Jim Brown, 
Um, the well-known musician who died very young, we don't know this yet in the film, of course, he's still alive, Sam Cooke. Well, I, I assume anybody who's watching it now is possibly aware that the only one still alive is Jim Brown. Jim Brown, and he's very old at this <laughs> and point, he's too. Yeah. dying, so. And Malcolm X. The four men are Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, Sam Cooke, and Malcolm X. And, um, you know, these are figures from the 650s and 60s, um, so I don't know. I assume... Most people know, I, everyone knows who Malcolm X is. I don't know. And I guess Muhammad I, Ali. They but, know Muhammad you know, Ali. I don't yeah. quite know. At this point in time, I'm not sure everybody is aware of Cassius Clay. I Yeah. Or, or think, Jim Brown or Sam Well, Cook. they know Jim Brown because he was already a college football Heisman Trophy winner and college football meant yeah. everything. He's uh, in commercials sometimes. Yes. I'm just thinking of a young, you know, the millennial yes. Gen Z group. I don't know well, how no, much they, they... If I told them Cassius Clay, they wouldn't have a clue who I was oh, talking about. they'd know Muhammad Ali. They'd though. know Muhammad yeah. Ali. But I, you know, for me... These are iconic figures. Well, that's what I was for going a younger to generation. Say, these are I don't know if that's true. Probably for the most influential African Americans at the time, yeah, and really just overall Americans at the time. They pretty much uh, made other than Martin Luther King. Yes, absolutely they made culture were, and yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Um, anyway, they're basically they're together, and they're basically the the movie is them sharing uh, their lives. Uh, their personal values uh, in this encounter they have uh, together. And um, they confront what their responsibilities are at that point to the Black community and the civil rights movement. I mean, uh, their conversations lead to this confrontation. And sometimes it's an angry confrontation. Sometimes it's a friendly confrontation. Um, Regina King, um, well-known actress, award-winning actress, is the director. I don't know if this is her first big film uh, to direct. She's done uh, uh, film-wise, yes. Yeah, uh, I think she's done some other kinds yes. of things. Yeah, but the first big feature film for her to direct. Boy, she did a great job with this because... Um, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to try to protect, but uh, bring these characters together and portray, I think, a conversation um, that's, you know, an hour and a half, two hours long. Um, uh, the best known star in the show is Leslie Odom Jr., who uh, plays Sam Cooke. And of course, most people do know him from uh, Hamilton and from, you know, his singing uh, career. And oh, uh, I thought you meant Sam Cook from Hamilton. I was like, no, 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 I, I, no Leslie Odom Jr. was in Hamilton. Sam Cook died in the 60s when he was in his I 30s. I was like, I don't think Sam made it to no, Hamilton. No, he did not. He had some great songs. I always liked Sam Cook's music. Um, and then Kingsley Benadare plays Malcolm X. I have to admit, I was not familiar with him as an actor. Uh, but he has been in a he number has been of things. In stuff. Uh, yeah. before, that's where I think I got a little lost in this. I didn't think any of them were all that great. Yeah. Now, they're playing essentially larger than life yes. figures. Right. It would be, I mean, they've all essentially had their own film themselves about yeah. their own lives. And uh, to mix results, Malcolm X being really the only one I'd call a, a stunning movie, the other. Yes. Biographical right. films have been With, okay to yes. four. Um, 
Well, actually, I thought that made it more of a challenge both for the director and the actors who are not real well known no, other than Leslie Odom. Not real well. Well, I think that actors. helped it a little bit, but yeah, still I, I Well, found it, it made it so that the characters were bigger than the stars. Yes. You know, and and um anyway, it's adapted from a play uh by Kemp Powers, who also wrote the screenplay for this movie. And I have to say, I think that's not a bad idea when the same person who writes the play also writes the screenplay because I thought it was well adapted for the screen, which I've gone over a number of times when we've had other movies that were adapted from plays where I didn't particularly like the adaptation. And I thought this was pretty well done. So um, this the date, February 25th, 1964, is um, the evening that, or the, the date that Cassius Clay, as he was known then, beat Sonny Liston for the first time. They fought twice. That's what I was going to say. And he, he beat him for the first time and became and took the heavyweight uh, champion title. I think this was also when Cassius Clay, he was young and it was before, I mean, he was brash yes. and smart aleck. Was right when he also was about to change his name. Yeah, after the I, I was going to say that, but he, it also was before he became extremely controversial yes. for his stand on the Vietnam War and his refusal to fight and the fact that they put him in prison and everything for that. Well, not even to war. mention the uh, second Sonny Liston fight where uh, um, we are don't know if Sonny took a dive or not. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's always been back <laughs> in the background, too. But the thing is, it, it was when Cat Clay was young, yes. and it was before a lot of that, which I think more people know about, the later yes. part of his life than this early part. But he was in the process co of converting to Islam, and actually Malcolm X was one of his mentors in leading him to do that. And and actually, that was somewhat controversial in it, itself. Malcolm X was a very controversial figure. Um, anyway, then these four men get together in uh, Malcolm's very humble motel room. That was the other thing. These were big stars who had big lives for black men of the time. I mean, they had money and they were fairly lavish. Um, but uh, uh, Malcolm X led a very um, simple life without a lot of money and trappings of someone who um, had the influence uh, that he had. And of course, he was a strict Islam uh, uh, follower. Um, anyway, uh, the the whole time, um, they show a little bit of before their meeting, and then it ends with a little bit after their meeting. But most of the movie is that these four men getting together, and um, they debate, they argue, they sort of come to terms with what each one of them uniquely has to offer as Black celebrities. Malcolm X is very hard on all of them. That's part of this. I mean, he thinks they aren't necessarily using their influence in, in the right way. Um, I think much of this play is based on the truths of their lives, and um, it, it makes for quite a riveting film, in, in my mind, a, a very good drama. Um, there are points where, you know, you can't help but having, when you have all this dialogue, uh, some slow points. I think there are some parts of the movie get, that get a little slow, but I, I uh, really was riveted to the conversation that they were having. I thought it was very thought provoking and I thought it was an interesting look at each one of these men and what their lives were like at, at that time. And then subsequently some of the things that they did uh, really to influence um, the civil rights movement. Um, I won't go into all of those details. I think, uh, I thought that acting for actors who weren't big stars 
And as, as we talked about, we're pretty overshadowed by the characters that they're playing. It, I thought their acting uh, was good. Odom has received, I think, the most uh, attention because he's the best known. Um, <clears throat> I thought it was quite challenging to take on, you know, roles of well-known men. And I did think they uh, did a good job portraying them. Um, I thought Regina King did a good job as director to pull all this together and make it an interesting film. Um, and uh, I think, um, you know, at the, at the end, they show a little follow-up on each man and uh, what they did do. I mean, I think Malcolm X was challenging all of them saying, you're not doing anything to help the civil rights movement, but they showed with each one of them you know, in the sense of Ali converting to Islam and taking the stand that he took. Now, the interesting part is um, he affiliated himself with um, a different leader in the Islam movement in the U.S., and it was one of Malcolm X's enemies, and there's always been discussion that that, I forgot to write down his name, but- Louis Farrakhan. Uh, yeah, but he had a different name at the yes, time, but, uh, an Islamic name. That's who everybody and would that, know. That he had something to do with the demise of Malcolm X yes, as well. But that's probably and a different show. <laughs> by demise, I mean his death. <laughs> and um, then Sam Cooke, although he wrote very popular songs, um, he wrote, uh, oh gosh, now it's slipping my mind, um, Things Gonna Change, um, uh, and, which has turned out to be one of the songs that's a leading song of the um, civil rights movement. And of course, Jim Brown is well known for taking the stand where the football owner, um, he was a Browns, Cleveland Browns football player, demanded that he come back and uh, for camp when he was in the middle of uh, making a movie. And he said, nope, I'm not going to be told what to do. I'm quitting football. So anyway, they've all took a stand and they have all had influence um, later in, in the uh, um, the uh, civil rights movement. Um, I'm going to uh, go ahead. You wanted to say something. Well, I, I just, uh, I really wanted to commend Regina King. I thought she did a great job yeah. on this film. Uh, it is, you know, once again, a play converted to a film, which uh, I, I thought it translated much, much better than uh, Ma Rainey's, which we did a, a couple of weeks ago, but it's still, you know, it's a lot of dialogue. It's <laughs> two non-scenes and then the rest of the movie essentially in a room where people are talking for about yeah. an hour and a half, which- And, and it slows down in points, yes, but- uh, Which sort of just um, leads to, I don't want to say boredom, but uh, you begin to tune out. Yeah. Um, so that was the only negatives I really, I, I thought the actors did a good job playing the parts. I just, well, I think it's almost impossible to, pull those yeah. parts together. I, I mean, you see it even with the like Ali movie, you have somebody as talented as Will Smith right. and it's just very hard to channel somebody like Muhammad Ali. It's very hard to channel somebody like Mike, Malcolm X and Jim Brown and even Sam Cooke for yeah. that matter. They're just- Well, because people know what they were yes. like and so you're portraying a real person and it's hard and, to and do. And they're all sort of personalities. It's right. not like a boring person. It, they're all personalities who have- been in the limelight since the 50s and 60s, really. Right. But you see, you know, even now you see a lot of film clips of those men when they were living. And um, so you know what they were like, you know what yes. they sounded like, what they looked like, you know, and, and also this was 
technically a fictitious meeting. It yes. never happened. Although there are some stories that there say are rumors. They, they were all in, yes. in Miami on that night, and yes. they might have actually seen each other as a result of the fight. Or, yes, you know, but, uh, I just wanted to it, make sure. Right, uh, it, it is a The odds of the meeting probably didn't actually happen. No, I don't <laughs> think there was a meeting in Malcolm X's motel room where they had these discussions, but that made it, yes. you know, even more That's riveting, I think, you know, it's the thought that that could have happened. And um, I, I just want to say too that um, I thought the acting was good, but um, it's Odom who is receiving all the attention because I think he was very good as Sam Cooke. He was quite good. And I might add that he sang several of Sam Cooke's songs in the movie too. And he was, it was very entertaining. He was very good. Um, but I really thought that um, Benadir that who played Malcolm, Malcolm X was the star. I thought he was very convincing. And he, to me, had the toughest role to play because everybody's seen Denzel Washington yes. play Malcolm X and win an Academy Award for it. Uh, Actually, or, what, he, did he didn't win. He that, was nominated. That's that right. was a yes, travesty but, of justice. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. We so, might get into sorry. that Friday on Golden Globes and why Spike Lee can't get award nominations. Oh my goodness. Uh, let's not go there, but that's just horrible. Anyway, um, uh, I, he had a lot of lines too. Think about it. Um, you know, in confronting all these uh, these three men, and I just thought he was uh, very good, very effective. Um, I think that um, each of the characters, each of the actors, helped um, a see a side of their celebrity. Um, you know, that was both good and bad. And I thought that's, that reflects more on the director and the script, but they, the actors were good yes. in pulling that very effective. They were effective. It's a really good ensemble cast. If yes. you think about it, they worked very well together. So um, I thought they made it believable. I mean, as I was watching, I could imagine yes. that this could have taken uh, place, you know? So. All right. Uh, that's one night in Miami. Um, what did you give it as a rating? Well, probably I, a 10 if you had watched it after Midnight Sky. <laughs> I happened to watch it before. So. Well, I did watch it after Midnight Sky, but I had to think of it in terms of other movies I've seen this year. And I, you know, I sort of went back and forth between a seven and an eight. Um, I, I really highly recommend this movie. Um, I think it's thought provoking, entertaining. It, it's an interesting thought to think of these men together discussing the things that they discussed. And I thought actually the play was well rendered on the yes. screen. So I, you know, there were some slow moments and you get a little bored with the dialogue at times, but um, seven, eight, uh, it, it wouldn't be hard for me to give it an eight. Yeah, I, I went more five and a half, six. Uh, <laughs> okay. But that's not bad. That's just. Um, I, I think everybody should watch it. I think it's worth a watch. I just, you know, it is a play translated to a movie. So I, I think it already, you know, has a hit to it that way, where it's basically watching four people sit around and talk. Now that part's entertaining, but, uh, you know, usually when you get that out of like a Quentin Tarantino movie, you at least get some violence at some section. <laughs> well, I can it. skip that. <laughs> but I, I just want to say, you know, as I thought about it, the other movie I gave a really high score to was The Trial of the Chicago 7. And I think having, you know, I'm older and I have lived through these times. I was I was a teenager in 1964. I was in high school. And um 
you know, I, I think I remember just as with Chicago seven, the trial of Chicago seven and, you know, these men uh, of the sixties and the civil rights movement, I think it means, you know, it, it just, I can relate to it a bit. And, and so it's very interesting for me. So it might be why I tend to give it a higher score. Yeah. Cause a lot of the recent movies I've watched, I have not given up. Yes. Well, I, it's not a bad movie. And I would definitely say watch the movie. And I thought yeah. Regina King did a great job in her first feature length film. I hope she gets a chance to do a couple more. And yeah, maybe, she did a fine job. And maybe something that isn't a play translated to a movie. She actually gets a feature length film that comes out in theaters one day when we do have theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're going to do what are we doing? Tom Hanks or. News of the world. Is News that, of the yeah, world. I think that's what we're doing next. News of yeah. the world next yeah. uh, Monday we'll yeah. be doing. We'll also have a show on Friday with the Golden Globe Awards, uh, breaking down all the uh, award nominees and uh, breaking that Why down. Why wasn't the Five Bloods nominated? <laughs> that's our show. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook at Greenlight Network, YouTube at Greenlight Network, and our website at greenlightnetwork.org. That's our show, and we're out.